let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'm, I'm Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm research uh, director here at the Women in Public Policy program, where we are committed to closing gender gaps in um, women's economic and political participation, uh, health and education. Uh, we, um, I am really excited about our speaker today. I'm excited about our whole um, spring lineup, and I'm thrilled you're all here. Um, our speaker today is uh, Professor Kira Sonbonmatsu um, from Rutgers and from uh, COP. If anybody studies women in politics, they know CAWP, the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University, uh, which is really the kind of place to go for you know statistics and information on um, women in politics here in the U.S. Um, uh, Kira is going to talk to us today about her new book, uh, More Women Can Run, um, and it's part of a larger uh, body of research that she does um, looking on um, gender and race and um, political representation in the United States, um, and then also you know, uh, public opinion and um, state politics. But really this is about kind of um, women as candidates, and I, got, I had the honor of reading uh, reviewing a chapter that she had done, actually looking, um, doing a similar uh, type of study that she does here with state legislators, right? Looking at um, mayors running for office, and it was really one of the chapters that stood out for me in the book. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So thank you very much. Um, be warned, you're, we're on, we're being recorded uh, for for podcasts, or be warned and be thankful. Thank you so much for that uh, kind introduction, and thank you all for coming. With the weather this week, I really wasn't sure we'd be here today, so I'm glad it all worked out. Um, I also want to thank um, or mention my co-author, Susan Carroll, who is also at the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. This is a co-authored uh, book I'm talking about. Um, and I guess I will take your questions at the end, and I look forward to, I know we have some time for discussion. Um, if you have points of um, information clarification, please, though, jump in during the talk. I also will mention that um, I'm a political scientist, but um, there is going to be a shout out in the talk to women who are very interested in public policy. So stay tuned for that. Okay, that'll be coming up. Great. So, and I um, have an appointment at the center, um, and I want to just, if you haven't been to our website before, you'll find um, just a treasure trove of information about women candidates and office holders, including historical information. So please visit our website um, if you haven't already. Great. So let me jump in. Um, so I'm talking about um, our new book called uh, More Women Can Run, Gender and Pathways to the State Legislatures. And the central problem that we're concerned with in this project is women's underrepresentation in elective office. Um, and although women's office holding has increased over time, women remain underrepresented, as you probably know, in elective office. This is somewhat surprising. If you think about last year, we just marked the 50th anniversary of the publication of Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique. We often associate the emergence of the modern women's movement with that book. So we're kind of 50, roughly 50 years out from the start of the modern women's movement. Um, women today are just under a quarter of all state legislators in the 50 states. Women are 18.5% of members of Congress. Yet women vote 
at a higher rate than men and have since 1980. So I think the underrepresentation of women in elective office um, is somewhat puzzling. And this is the puzzle uh, that I'm interested in. And I'm sure in a group on women in public policy, I'm sure you've discussed the different reasons we might care about women's underrepresentation in elective office. So there are a number of reasons we might be interested in that, including the different perspectives that women bring into office, agenda setting differences. Um, there's also questions of fairness, democratic legitimacy. So there are a lot of reasons we should be concerned about it. And so while we're interested in this book about um, the general question of women's underrepresentation in office, there was a very specific puzzle that motivated us um, in this book, which is something we've been seeing at the center when we look at data on women's presence in state legislatures over time. We've been seeing something that, we, that has been puzzling us um, at the Center for American Women in Politics. And that is, um, if you look, this is just an overtime slide, uh, for those of you following the podcast, I guess, um, of women's state legislative representation. And what we see is that, you know, in the 70s and 80s, there were gradual increases in women's uh, representation in state legislatures. You know, the numbers were increasing little by little. And um, I think there was an expectation in the 70s and 80s that this would kind of continue. But what we've been seeing, and what you can see in this slide, is that kind of since the late 90s, around 2000, there's been this plateau, right, in terms of, um, show up. It doesn't show up, okay. Um, anyway, you can kind of see it. There's a kind of plateau in women's state legislative representation, which is surprising. I mean, so there have been kind of this incremental increase, and we're kind of been seeing stagnation, what we've been calling kind of stagnation at the Center for American Women in Politics. The research on women's election to office in the 1970s and 80s didn't um, predict this. There was an expectation of continued growth. And so what we're seeing is definitely not um, what was expected. And so we were motivated to try to better understand this problem. So there's the larger problem of women's underrepresentation, but there's this specific problem of um, stagnation in women's state legislative representation. And of course, there's a very large and rich literature about women's election to office that we are kind of located in. Um, just to kind of give you a sense of some of the main arguments about the, the reasons for women's underrepresentation in office, um, I'll kind of um, segment these into three different categories. And basically, you know, we're, our feeling was that existing accounts don't explain this phenomenon that we're seeing. Um, so one set of explanations, which is very important, has to do with political opportunity. Most incumbents are male. Incumbents um, are very successful when they want run for re-election. So, you know, there's just some lag, right? There's some institutional inertia about women's office holding. Um, and so kind of the expectation here is, well, so long as there are political opportunities, you know, when, when the opportunities are there, right, when there are open seat opportunities, we should see uh, women making a lot of gains. And, you know, this is an important explanation, but what we've seen with some of the research about state legislative term limits is that um, openings are not sufficient, right? So incumbency is certainly part of the story, but it's only part of the story, okay? Because even in states that have seen um, openings created by term limits, we haven't necessarily seen a lot of gains for women 
uh, women's office holding in the states. There's a lot of emphasis on what we're calling uh, social factors. Uh, we're going to kind of lump those into another set of explanations. And um, this, these accounts basically assume that, well, social equality for women has to precede political equality. Right? So you have to have um, the kind of continuation of the women's movement, and women need to move into um, man's world, and they have to, we have to re-socialize women, and they have to have the same um, attributes of men in order to kind of get political equality. Um, and so basically, there's um, some inevitability with this expectation because as social roles continue to progress and evolve, you know, women will eventually get to political equality. Um, and I think that when you think about the, that plateau I showed you, you can kind of see why we're dissatisfied with that as, a, as an explanation. Um, in fact, one set of authors predicted um, that if you take into account openings and you take into account women's continued progress in the professions and the labor force, women should be 45% of state representatives or should have been by 2006. So this is a prediction made in the 90s, right, so that women really should have been kind of by now around parity for state legislature, which is often kind of an entry-level office. So clearly there's something else going on, and that gains um, are not inevitable for uh, women state legislators. Okay, so then our argument is going to build on what we're calling political factors. So that's kind of where we're located. And I'm going to um, say more about this later, but I would just point out that most of the research about women's election office in the United States actually hasn't been about politics, which may be counterintuitive. Um, but political factors have kind of been un underemphasized. But we're gonna—I'm going to argue today that they should—they should not be. Okay. So the um, data. Let me say something about how we conducted our study, which is we decided to revisit a study that the center conducted in 1981. Uh, this is basically a survey of women state legislators, all women state legislators in the 50 states, the center did in 1981 about backgrounds and pathways to office. And we decided to revisit that, which we did in 2008. And basically the questionnaire is about um, backgrounds, kind of biographical information, and also the decision to run. Um, and we compared women state legislators with their male colleagues. And we're very fortunate to receive a major grant from the Barbara Lee Family Foundation um, that, along with matching grants, made this research possible. So our strategy here is to understand how women are getting into office, right? What works for them, or what worked for them? How did they get there? Um, the leverage we're getting is to compare women with their male colleagues. So how are women getting there? How are men getting there? And then we have this overtime comparison, 1981-2008. And so we want to understand if, what, if anything, has changed for how women um, get into office. In 2009, we conduct, also conducted some follow-up uh, phone interviews with women state legislators from a diverse um, set of backgrounds in order to better inform our survey findings. And I can talk more about the methodology and the question and answer if you'd like. At this point, I'll just note that um, men and women in our survey kind of came to office in similar ways. So they're kind of equally likely to have faced um, a primary opponent, equally likely to have taken on an incumbent, and so on. So they're kind of 
similar in terms of their electoral path. Okay, so what I want to do um, for the remainder of my time is I'm gonna, I want to move quickly and I want to give you a sense of the whole book. I want to kind of give you a taste of the arguments that we're going to make, but I also want to show you some of the evidence that those different points are based on. So I want to kind of give you a flavor of everything. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to argue, as we do in the book, that more women can run for the legislatures than is commonly believed that women's decision-making about running is more relationally embedded than men's, and I'll explain what we mean by relationally embedded a little bit later. We're also going to argue that parties, organizations, and candidate recruitment are important to explaining women's representation, and that our account, we think, better explains this plateau, okay, and this kind of um, we're seeing in terms of women's state legislative representation today. And then I will conclude, and I'm looking forward to your comments and questions. So, okay, so our my talk kind of involves a little bit of time travel because you have to think back to 1981. What was going on um, in 1981? Um, Ronald Reagan was president. The first woman was on the was uh, being put on the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor. Okay, this is a long time ago. Um, also, the gender gap in terms of voting behavior it was just becoming. Uh, popular term in the media. So this was a time when women were only 12.1% of state legislators. So a lot has changed, you know, so we have to do a little time travel to 2008. A lot has changed for women, of course, between uh, 81 and 2008. You can think about changes in gender roles, women's uh, gains in labor force participation, moving into professions, and so on and so forth. Um, Today, women are earning half of law degrees. Almost a quarter of married women are earning more than their husbands, and so on. So a lot has changed, and this is we spend a lot of time trying to think about in the book, you know, what we should expect if we look at how women got into office in 1981, and then how they are um, getting into office now. And basically, and as I've already said, you know, there has been growth in women's state legislative representation, but not what we were expecting to see. So. Um, we outline three different models that might explain this over time comparison. Um, the first is an assimilation model, where we think of men as the norm um, and, and wonder, well, in, given how much time has passed, have women assimilated to the pathways that men are taking to office, right? So, you know, men are getting into office in a certain way, maybe women are now getting into office that same way. Um, another uh, possibility is what we call a persistent differences model, which is just, well, there were differences in 1981 in how women and men reached office. Um, perhaps those have persisted. And then the last option is convergence, so that perhaps women have somewhat assimilated to men's paths, but also maybe uh, men have changed somewhat to look more like women's paths. So, now you're on the edge of your seat about what we found and I'm going to just, in the interest of time, I'm going to cut to the chase, which is that we found some evidence in support of all three models, but that um, most of the comparisons, when we look at 81 and 2008, um, is one of persistent gender differences, which surprised us, given everything that has changed. Um, gender differences in 2008 were stunningly similar to those that we saw in 1981. Let me give you one quick example showing you um, data from 2008 um, in terms of the occupations that men and women state legislators come from. 
in um, 1981, we found that women were more likely than men to come from kind of female-dominated occupations, like health and education. Men were more likely to come from male-dominated occupations, like business and law. Okay, that's kind of more the pathways that we tend to think about in terms of leading to elective office. Um, in 2008, this is, and this is the 2008 data, we still see a difference, right? Women are still more likely to be reaching office from a background in female-dominated fields, like health and education. So this is what we call evidence of persistent gender differences, okay? So that there were differences back then, they still exist. Um, and then just to kind of give you a sense of what the assimilation evidence looks like, you know, we do see more women reaching office um, as lawyers than we did in the past. And also there used to be um, a common route to the state legislature for women, which was being a homemaker. And, and that was kind of the uh, precursor to running for office. And that path, the homemaker path, is pretty much uh, gone away. So, you know, so, we, so that's some of the assimilation evidence we find. Okay, but it's mostly a story about persistent gender differences. Um, to give you a couple of other examples of what we mean here, um, in both time periods, women are more likely than men to have political experience. They're more likely to say their spouse is very supportive of their office holding. They're less likely to have young children, and they're more likely to say that ha the age of their children was an important factor in their decision to run for office. Um, so for example, if you look at 1981 and 2008, state representatives and state senators, you see that um, when asked about the importance of various, various factors in explaining the decision to run, um, my children being old enough for me to feel comfortable not being home as much, right? that factor is more important to women than to men in their decisions. Um, this was true in 1981, it's still true today. Okay, so although we are arguing that there are gender differences in pathways, to be clear, we don't want to argue that there is a woman's pathway or that there is a uh, male pathway because we also see a lot of variability, right? So there is variability among women. Um, women are coming to office from different occupations, different educational statuses, um, parental status is different across women and so on. Um, and so what we um, want to argue is that there are a diverse set of qualifications and experiences that one can have before running for the legislature. There isn't kind of a single path that you have to take. Um, this kind of really jumped out at us in a question we asked in our um, follow-up phone interviews about, well, what qualifications does a woman need to run for the legislature? This is kind of an open-ended question. Um, we asked the two dozen women we, we, we um, interviewed by phone in 2009. And some of the women uh, paused when we asked, well, what qualification do you need? Because I think there isn't a very, there isn't a single answer to that question. Um, and just to give you a flavor of what some of that um, interview evidence looks like, one woman said, you know, when, when asked, well, what qualification or experience does a woman need to have? One said, none. There's no, you know, nothing in particular. It's a willingness, and once you have that willingness and desire, commitment to give it everything you've got. Another legislator said, well, I think you need to be educated enough, you know, like at the sixth grade level. 
right? And you have to like people. Other people said, other uh, responses were, um, we have to be engaged in your community. You have to come out of the community. Uh, you need a base. You know, these kinds of things. But no particular credential. Okay, so what, what we think this means, and this is why we call the book More Women Can Run, is that there are few, if any, uh, particular qualifications you need to reach the legislature. Um, we don't have to wait for women's and men's lives to converge, right? So growth in women's state legislative representation has occurred even in the face of um, persistent gender differences in, um, in backgrounds. And if we think more broadly about the women who could serve in office, you realize that the pool of women who could run is sufficient to achieve gender parity. Okay? So, in other words, I think a lot of scholarship in the 70s and 80s kind of anticipating gender changes, women, women more moving into male-dominated occupations because you had to have those credentials, right? And so what we're arguing is, you know, women are getting there from um, other alternative ways, right? And so this is really important going forward about uh, what this means for equality in women's representation. Okay, then the second argument I want to make today is, has to do with the decision to run. Um, implicit in the, a lot of the women in elections literature is that the decision about running for office for women will look like uh, what it looks like for men. And we tend to think about running for office in the United States as being about ambition, right? And it's kind of this self-propelled, self-initiated notion of candidacy and we, um, in the book, advance an alternative model of decision-making about running for office. So we uh, find that women's decisions to run are more often relationally embedded than men's decisions. And by that we mean women's decisions more often than men's were influenced by the beliefs and reactions of others and to involve considerations of how candidacy and office holding would affect the lives of other people. So while I've just argued more women can run, we're also arguing that most will only do so with encouragement and support. Okay. This is really clear if you look at the role recruitment plays for women's presence in state legislatures. Okay. We build on work um, by a scholar named Gary Moncrief and his co-authors. They interviewed um, state legislative candidates and they developed this idea of self-starters, which are people who ran for office um, because it was their idea. That's kind of on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum are people who were recruited. You know, hadn't even thought about it until someone suggested it to them, and then some people are in the middle. So when we break out our data using that framework, this was a question about your very first decision to seek elective office. And what we find, the, the women are in orange here, um, it was entirely my idea to run. The men are more likely to say it was my idea, right? That's kind of the self-starter, self-initiated path or decision-making model. Down at the bottom, I had not seriously thought about running until someone else suggested it. 
Um, these are women, these are um, our 2008 data, people who ran for the legislature's their first office. Majority of the women hadn't thought about it until someone suggested it to them. Um, and then some people are in between, kind of a mix of the two models. So we think that although we've typically assumed, right, that women are going to have to converge and look like men to get to office, we think that this suggests a different way of thinking about candidacy, right? This is what we're calling relationally embedded. Um, and what we think this means is that women need not aspire to run for office from a young age in order to get there. It's something that can be suggested late in life um, and, and perhaps in um, the context of a particular opportunity, you know, a particular opening or the, you know, the party needs a candidate in a specific race. So it can be something very specific. Um, just to mention, we asked for those people who, other than the self-starters, we asked who suggested the idea, and <clears throat> men and women basically are reporting kind of similar sources of that suggestion to run. Um, and mostly they're political sources. It's uh, elected official or party leader, that kind of thing. I mean, it could also be a spouse or a family member or a friend. You know, it doesn't have to be political, but for the most part, these are suggestions that are coming from the political realm. Okay, um, in terms of relationally embedded decision making, we would also argue that other evidence in our surveys support this view. Women state legislators were more likely to rate party support as very important to their decision to run. Women were more likely than men to report that an organization played an important role in getting them to run for the legislature. And I already mentioned uh, family factors and age of children um, in the previous part of the talk. So we think that what this tells us is parties, organizations, and candidate recruitment are more important than is commonly believed in understanding how women's representation is produced. Okay, and then the last set of arguments I want to make has to do, I want to go back to that slide about the level of women's representation that I started with. Okay. And, we're, and what we're arguing is that this plateau is less surprising than it first appeared because we want to shift attention to political factors creating women's representation away from social factors. Okay. Because remember, on the social level, Women have made gains in terms of education, occupation, labor force, um, and so this is very puzzling. If social factors, if political fact, if um, political representation is simply a kind of mathematical function of social factors, okay, that's just inevitable, and that it's there, there that that's the main driver, okay. And so we want to argue that t attention to politics can better explain this than previous accounts, and again. What we're trying to do is shift the focus kind of away from individual women and their characteristics, their properties. We want to kind of think about the larger environment, uh, the larger political environment in which women candidates might be thinking about running and might emerge from. And I think, um, you know, one of the most important political factors is political party. And it's not just because I study political parties that I, I'm going to talk, <laughs> talk about political parties, because actually, if you look at this slide by party, the story is really different. Okay, and this is, so this is 
women state legislators over time. But here I'm showing you Democratic women as a percentage of Democratic legislators and Republican women as a percentage of Republican legislators. Okay, and what you see over time is, you know, first of all, in the 70s, the uh, story for women by party looks pretty much the same. In fact, Republican women are a little bit better represented in their party than our Democratic women. But pretty much, um, you know, the presence of women in the two parties is similar. And then this changes, okay? Um, and it changes in a way where Democratic women, you know, they are experiencing continued growth, right? That, that line is kind of trending upwards, which was what the literature expected. Right, that was the prediction. Um, and what's really going on has to do, that plateau really has to do with Republican women. Okay, so Republican women, um, as a share of their party, they're stagnating. Their stagnation is driving that overall pattern that I was showing you in the previous uh, chart. Uh, I know you want questions, yeah. but can I ask a brief clarification uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because of the gender gap, which I mentioned, right. uh, which favors the Democratic Party. Right. And what we do, we, so we do have a slide about uh, party identification in the electorate. And basically, the story is about men moving to the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. But women pretty much, you know, they kind of start out our time series in terms of the electorate, very Democratic. Republican women are kind of continuing the same, and it's men who are kind of leaving the Democratic Party and joining the Republican Party. So it's not so much women changing in terms of that. What's happening for um, the Republican Party over this time period is that the Republican Party has been extremely successful um, in terms of winning state, state legislative seats and chambers and states. A majority of state legislators are Republicans. So the Republican Party has really been gaining, um, but w Republican women haven't been sharing in that success of their party. Okay, so in, in the book we discuss um, several factors that may explain this. So we talk about the gender gap as one potential factor. And so what I want to focus in on is how our relationally embedded idea helps explain this, um, this factor. So I want to show you an, a different survey question we asked, which is the single most important reason um, that legislators sought their current office. And I'm going to show you this for Republicans, men and women, and then Democrats, men and women. And um, let's start with the Republicans. This is data from 2008. I'm going to show you uh, state representatives. This was, uh, again, the single most important reason you ran for your current office men more likely to say, my long-standing desire to be involved in politics, which is similar to the argument I've already been making. Um, here we see, you know, among Republicans, this is more likely to characterize men's, deci men's decision-making than women's. The same is true if we move to Democrats. So Democratic men more likely than Democratic women to say this long-standing desire. Yeah. So you're saying that among men, 
this was the most common, that, like among a bunch of options that you raised, yeah. this was the, this this is was the, the response for men in both parties? Yeah. Okay, and so you'll show them. Okay, so you're wondering, well, what's explaining women, right? Yeah, well, that's right. right. You're going to show us the modal response for women. Okay, so women, um, so what happens for women is policy, oh, here's my shout out to public policy, right? <laughs> public policy, uh, women who want it, who go into office because they want to affect policy. This is something that's more of a motivation for women than for men. This is Republicans, I mean, not a huge difference, but there's a gender gap here. Um, Republican women um, and men, public policy, more likely for women than for men. Um, recruitment, which kind of dovetails with what I've already argued, recruitment is more likely uh, to explain um, you know, why I sought my current state legislative seat. It's because of, you know, someone asked me to, to, to seek the seat. Yeah? What are other potential reasons why people do that? Um, desire to change the way government works, dissatisfaction with the incumbent. Those are pretty much, I think, we, we didn't, I can, um, I can read you the exact question in the Q&A if you want. Okay, so this is uh, Republicans, Democrats, uh, same thing, policy is uh, more of the motivator for women than for uh, Democratic men, and then um, recruitment more likely to explain Democratic women than Democratic men. Unfortunately, we didn't ask this in 1981, so we only have 2008 data on this question. Okay, so then let's look at, I'm going to put the women together here on one slide, so Republican women and Democratic women. Okay, so let me go back to the divergence in the women's representation in the two parties. Um, what we want to argue is that the kind of gendered pathway to office has kind of interacted with changes in political parties over the past several decades. Um, and that, you know, if you think about changes in the Republican Party um, in the past several decades, we think that explains, helps explain um, the uh, different pattern because we think that these um, columns could be higher for Republican women and then and the number of Republican women in the legislatures could be higher okay because we think that things are happening for Democratic women that are missing for Republican women and it has to do with um, the Republican Party's shift to the right over the past uh, several decades um, and we would argue that the necessary ingredients external to women have been present on the Democratic side, missing um, on the Republican side, particularly because of changes in the Republican Party. We know from um, studies that the center has done of women state legislators over time that women state Republican women state legislators tend to be more moderate. Republican women elites tend to be more moderate than their male counterparts, and so you know, as the party, as the Republican Party has moved further to the right, it's made life difficult for moderates. Um, and this is kind of disproportionately affecting Republican women. Um, if you think about Democratic Party politics, you know, to the extent that the political parties are polarizing, um, a very left-leaning primary elector on the Democratic side isn't necessarily going to hurt um, Democratic women who are more to the left than Democratic men. So this kind of changes in the parties, the ideology of the parties has kind of affected the two groups of women differently. Um, we also find, you know, feminist organizations like Emily's List, groups dedicated to electing women, those tend to be 
on the Democratic side of the aisle, in short supply uh, on the Republican side. And of course, um, the national parties, you know, we've seen that the Democratic Party is more allied with feminist organizations than and Republican Party has sided with socially conservative women's organizations. And so what this means is that, you know, to the extent that there's an ideological commitment um, of party leaders to elect more women to office, you know, that's more coming from the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. And, you know, our story is one of recruitment, so we think that it's important who's doing the recruiting and whether party leaders have a specific commitment to gender diversity. Um, we also know that there is kind of a self-perpetuating problem in terms of the dearth of Republican women in the party, means the dearth of Republican women in leadership positions, and that has you know implications for who gets recruited. Whereas you, know, you see more and more women gaining in the Democratic Party and become moving into leadership roles. So there's a uh, difference there. So because um, to join the different parts of the talk together again, because women are more reliant on external encouragement and support. It's this uh, gendered pathway that has interacted with changes in the parties, leading to different opportunities for women's office holding by party. Uh, another change that has benefited the Democratic Party is the rise of women of color in state legislatures. Um, this is just raw numbers of uh, women of color state legislators over time, well, this is since 1991. Um, women of color are increasing, still underrepresented, but they have been making gains in state legislative office holding. And virtually all of these women are Democrats. So we know that you know the Civil Rights Movement, uh, Voting Rights Act, um, changes in immigration policy have fueled the rise of people of color in elected office, and this is something that is kind of helping um, the Democratic Party. So the center, to go back to the party slide, the Center for American Women in Politics is bipartisan. So I don't want to create the false impression that, uh, you know, only 30, that women can only be 32 percent of the Democratic Party's state legislators. We think actually that both parties, including the Democratic Party, could be doing more to um, elect women to office. Um, and partly that has to do with um, women of color because we find, you know, most of the research finds that women of color are being elected from majority minority districts. In our data, what that means is recruitment is less likely to be happening for women of color. You know, women of color being elected from safe democratic districts, um, they're less likely to kind of benefit from recruitment because there's going to be a primary in those cases. So we think actually that um, women of color, if the party was encouraging more women of color to run in a wider range of districts, um, that that would actually increase uh, women's democratic representation. Okay, and then I have just one more, you've been so patient, I have just one more slide I want to show you before um, I conclude, which has to do with campaign finance. We, um, this is the largest gender difference in our, in our surveys, this is a question we added in 2008. We, um, it's a perceptual question about whether it's equally hard for women and men to raise money, harder for women to raise money, or harder for men to raise money. Okay, so the Democratic women are listed first. Most Democratic women state legislators think it's harder for women to raise money, with 38% saying it's equally hard 
for uh, men and women to raise money. 85% of Democratic men think it's hard for men and women to raise money. There's also a gender gap among Republicans. Um, majority of Republican women think it's, harder, it's hard for men and women to raise money, but 44% think it's harder for women, which is a substantial proportion, compared to 95% of Republican men who think it's equally hard for men and women to raise money, right? So it's just hard to raise money for everybody. This, and this surprised us for a couple of reasons. One is the um, gender and congressional literature has argued that you know, ever since the advent of Emily's List, pretty much, you know, women and men, women are doing fine in terms of campaign finance and maybe are even advantaged sometimes. So this is kind of supposed to be a non-issue. So it's surprising from the standpoint of some of the congressional studies. It's also surprising because these women are successful. You know, they're in office, so they're survivors. They're, they, you know, they raised the money, they got there. So we think it's interesting that this um, difference exists. When we asked a follow-up question for those who said it's harder for women to raise money, why that is, um, the most common response was women um, have different women and men have differential access to networks. Okay, so it's kind of a network problem. And then the second most common, it's harder for women to ask for money. So we were talking about earlier. So, um, so those are some of the, the reasons. So, and we think that this slide underscores our argument about um, having necessary supports in place for women in order to uh, get them into office, that they need to have s supports and resources uh, in order to be successful. Okay, so I've argued that um, because women legislators are reaching office from a range of backgrounds and experiences, ages and occupations, there are more than enough women in the eligible pool to achieve gender parity in state legislatures. This means more women can run than is commonly believed. I argued that uh, candidacy is a more relationally embedded decision for women. Um, recruitment is more likely to explain how women got into office. What this means is that women can reach office even if they didn't aspire to uh, have a career in politics from a young age. The corollary is that women's representation depends more than men's on the strength of recruitment mechanisms that encourage women's candidacies and the presence of support for their campaigns because encouragement and support is helping uh, produce women's representation. And so this means that parties, organizations, and recruitment are more, more important to explaining women's representation than we previously thought. Recognizing this, we've argued that the stagnation we've been seeing in recent years in women's state legislative office holding is really about Republican women. Um, and that the factors, the external factors encouraging and supporting women's candidacies have more, been more available to Democratic women um, and in shorter supply for Republican women. And then in terms of um, implications, so in terms of scholarly implications, well, there is a lot of emphasis on um, the idea that politicians are ambitious, that candidacy is self-propelled or self-initiated, 
we think office holding decisions are more embedded in social and political relationships than we realized. And we would argue that you know, this alternative way of thinking about candidacy is not necessarily an inferior way, um, and that both ways, including relationally embedded candidacy, can successfully produce democratic self-governance. For um, the gender and politics literature specifically, we think that uh, we need to kind of focus more of our research on the kind of political uh, factors affecting women's representation. And then in terms of more practically oriented implications, we are arguing that um, those interested in recruiting more women to office can take some very practical advice away, which is where to look for potential women candidates, and we're saying, gee, there's an awful lot of women out there in America working in female-dominated occupations, and that you don't have to wait for all women to go to law school um, in order to get them into office, that you can, there are large pools of women um, who could be recruited, uh, and, in, and w women from a public policy background. Right? So women have a real strong interest in public policy, and this can um, be used to get them to run for office. And then the last implication is um, that women's office holding can be increased in the short to medium term because uh, dramatic social change and uh, social revolution isn't necessarily uh, needed because we think there are a sufficient number of women out there already, but that what's needed is concerted effort, infrastructure, uh, attention by organizations, parties, donors to change the level of women's representation. So that's it. Look forward to questions. Questions, comments? Yes. Uh, I guess the potential number in 2008 would be all 1,200. What are there, 1,200 women state legislators in the country as a whole? My question is uh, apparently in 1981, when you sent questionnaires to the, uh, what was it, 700 uh, women legislat state legislators in the country, uh, there was a 55% response. Uh -huh. But in 2008, the response yes. rate dropped to 37%. That's, yes. That's a yes. big drop. Yes. And I'm wondering uh, how you might explain that uh, tremendous difference. Yes, rate. yes. I mean, we had been really hoping to get a higher response rate. Um, political scientists survey state legislators too much, basically. And not just uh, political scientists, but organizations, PACs. Um, they're over, they're kind of, th the situation for conducting surveys of state legislators then and now has changed, unfortunately. So, um, and but, you know, our response rate today isn't that dissimilar from other national state legislature surveys. Yes? I was wondering if you were able to be segregated at all looking regionally. I would imagine kind of, you know, as, uh, parties aside, there still would be differences in California and Alabama, but I don't know if you remember Yeah, we don't really have, for this project, we're pooling all the state, the women state legislators, so, you know, we have more responses from states where women have done better. Um, but so we don't have enough end to look state by state. Mm -hmm. Did you have a specific thought? Just that. I, ju I was just imagining that there would be different regions running in different regions outside of 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll, I'll throw out one, one way we have looked at our data, which is by uh, state legislative professionalism. You know, kind of the states like the Californias where it's really a full-time job um, and states where it's more of a citizen body. And we do find that recruitment is more likely to to explain the pathways of state legislators for less professionalized bodies. That, you know, the kind of more professional legislatures have more of a, a track to getting there. Yeah, I mean, so we have definitely have self-reports. We have um, a lot of different, I think, ways to get at the question. So I think that this question is, let's see, you know, I think, you know, that kind of response, if there's some kind of response bias, I think it's maybe more likely to show up in a question like this. But we have other questions where it's how important were different factors to you, and so we even find differences on those, where it's just kind of is it very somewhat or not at all important. And I think we find kind of the same pattern of responses on you know, multiple types of uh, questions. But I think um, the fact that we're using perceptual data is okay because you know, this is what is influencing, we think this is in influencing women's decisions. So if this is how they see the world, then, um, you know, they're the ones who are running or not running. But, I mean, it is, um, I think it is a good question. Yes? So this, our data are only state legislators. So these are successes, you know, these are success stories. Um, other research has looked at kind of success rates of state legislative candidates and argued that, you know, if you look at women who are running in general election races and uh, who's winning, the proportions are the same. So the success rates are the same. So. So people have kind of since the 1970s been arguing, you know, women and men, once you take into account incumbency, they do about, just about the same. That finding is being revisited right now, though, especially in terms of congressional races, where um, some research by Sarah Fulton is arguing that women have to be better to get the, to yield the same vote share. So, you know, we see men and women, if, even if we see men and women equally successful when they run, um, if the women are better, then it's not really equal. So, but for state legislative races, most of the literature has suggested they do about the same. And it's really um, a dearth of candidates is the problem. Yes? Um, and also within the idea that um, women are more influenced by support from party organizations than men are, were you able to look at all at the current levels of party, party organization support, whether women are currently getting more of the same, less than, than male candidates? That's something that has been looked at um, in terms of um, some research Barbara Burrell has done about just kind of uh, party contributions to male and female candidates in general election races, and she finds for congressional races that party support is about the same. Um, but we think that 
you know, there we haven't really as a field been trying to measure that. You know, you can measure contributions for general election candidates, but you don't know kind of at the primary stage or the pre-primary stage who is getting that kind of informal support or um, the encouragement. And so we think that we need to be more um, creative about how we're looking at party support and how that can matter early on. I mean, I think that part of the reason that women have done increase their numbers, especially Democratic women in Congress, is they built their own network of donors, right? So they, they the Demo, you know, Emily's List was in response to a failure of the Democratic Party to fund women. So I think, um, you know, to some extent, women have found ways around the parties. Um, and in some cases now, you know, the, Emily's List is a partner of the Democratic Party, so things have changed a lot. But I think there's still questions about what happens of early on, and it, I think it, getting back to the state variation question, I think it kind of depends on different states. You know, I think women are have more influence in some uh, parts of the parties than others, and in some states more than others. Yeah. On a similar note, um, on the issue of recruitment, I wonder if you asked the question or, or whether this would be a product of your research to know whether these people who you surveyed the success stories are they then mentoring women who are considering this, women who might be running for government offices, to what, what responsibility do they have, do they feel that they have, should they have, what do you think? I think we don't, um, I don't think we have direct evidence of that in this study, but I think there's a lot of research um, and qualitative evidence that that is exactly the case, that women do feel they need to be role models for other women, that they uh, oftentimes, and this was, um, I think there's some specific questions about this in the 1981 survey that we don't get into in this book, which is, you know, are you going to recruit a woman for your seat? So I think there is a lot of that happening, um, even though we don't really get into that in the book. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, it is, a, I think women feel that responsibility to pave the way for other women. Although it's tricky because you don't want to recruit someone to challenge you, <laughs> right? So, you know, if you're a sitting, if you're a sitting uh, elected official, you don't want to be too enthusiastic. <laughs> but but people do think ahead to their successor. So uh, back here? Yeah. I was curious about the proportional um, gap between women in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and whether part of that can be explained by a disproportionate number of women in each party or is that an issue? Yeah, that that kind of came up earlier. Um, I think that the um, you know there is you know, there is a gender gap, and women are more Democratic than, um, than Republican. But I think what we're arguing is that that alone, you know, if you look, you know, a majority of white women voted for, vote for Republican presidential candidates, for example. And so there are just many more Republican women out there who could be running for office we would argue, even though there is a gender gap, so there should be, you know, so it's not su really surprising that there are more Democratic women elites than Republican women elites because women are more Democratic than Republican, but we think as a women, Republican women are not being represented it, within their own party in proportion to their, their numbers. Yes? Um, excuse me, I'm wondering, is there any sort of information or data that you looked at that looks at how many women run at the same time against each other 
And if that, if one woman was already in the race, does that then disincentivize other women from entering the race or from being asked to enter the race? Do they think, you know, you can have one woman and three men run against each other, but if you have a second woman in there, she's going to spoil it for the first woman? Because there's some research that shows that in a hiring pool, if you have a female boss, that's incentive that you you feel like you can move up in that organization. But if you have female peers, you're more likely to leave because you feel like you have a smaller chance of being selected as the woman to get ahead. So I'm wondering, was there any sort of pool effect? That hasn't been looked at for state legislative races, but there is some evidence um, at the primary stage for congressional races, but it's the opposite of what you're saying, which is women are more likely to run for seats with a woman candidate. And it could be that the party, the, the out party, is um, trying to cut into any kind of um, natural advantage women, a woman office holder might have, like if she's seeking re-election, the out party might try to run a woman against her to try to kind of cut into her support with women voters. Um, so it's more, uh, you tend to see more a woman candidate is more likely to see it. You're more likely to see other women candidates. And it also, there's um, some research about the state pattern in women's office holding where, you know, some states women are doing better. And so the more women at the local level, the more women you see for other levels. So it's more, you know, it's maybe a contagion effect or there's something favorable about that environment that other women see that they could be successful or maybe donors and parties think that women can be successful, so then they get recruited. So, but it's in the opposite direction. Yes. Um, I think that fits with a lot of organizational literature too. That you know, um, <coughs> women preceding higher positions and long have women follow. Stuff. But I'm wondering about this. I'm, I'm really upon this story. Does this? Um, uh, two questions. One is, um, does this replicate at the congressional level? So is it this extreme at the congressional level? Is this, is, like, is this a national party issue, or is there something distinct going on at the local level? And then I was interested, going back on this, you, you raised in response to the geographic diversity question, this idea, which is very interesting, with regard to the professionalization of the legislature, and I would mm -hmm. think that would make a big difference for gender and participation. And I wonder whether, um, I wonder if you just, just talk more in more detail about this story of what was going on. You know, I'm just picturing like the 1890s, like the, you know, like the 1990s, there was this whole thing of Republicans wanting to take over local, they were kind of going for a local office. In some ways it may have been a more conservative end of the party, we're sort of, we're kind of taking over school committees and a lot of like mm -hmm. local offices. And this was sort of the idea of kind of building up the grassroots and there's this very explicit kind of conversation that's being talked about. But I wonder whether, is that maybe, is it, is it particular to the local level, or is this really a national issue? So the numbers, you know, the, the, the disparity by party among women is similar at the national level, and part of that is a lot of the women members of Congress were previously state legislators. Okay. So, and okay. women are so more likely, yeah, and women are more likely to be, um, women in Congress are more likely to have state legislative experience than men. So it seems, you know, it's kind of, I think there might be a slightly different story about Congress, but it's a similar, it's a similar, similar story. Laurel Elder has done some work on um, the party gap in Congress, and one of the arguments she makes is the growth of the Republican Party has been, um, you know, a 
southern, in the South particularly, right. um, you know, that that <coughs> can partly explain the, the shifting regional bases of the part of the Republican of the parties, the decline of um, the Republican Party in the Northeast, the rise of the Republican Party in the South. The South has not been a very hospitable environment for women uh, running for office. That they, you know, that of all the regions, that tends to be the worst region for women. So there is, um, I think, a regional story going on, and we we. We also think there's, in our data, there's some evidence of regional story, but it's different because in, for Congress, you obviously have seats shifting, you know, because of um, population changes nationally. You can have seats reallocated to different parts of the country, whereas state legislators, you have to keep your seats in the state, even if um, they, the, the lines change with redistricting. Um, in terms of professionalization, it's very interesting because there are, there's this way in which professionalization of state legislatures where, you know, it's kind of more of a full-time job and um, there's a kind of clear pathway about how you get there and, um, you know, some states are more likely to look like Congress and have staff and so on than other states. There's some sense that that should be good for women because the pathway there is more clear. Um, and it's a, if it's a full-time job, you don't have to be a partner in a law firm to afford to be there, there's actually a salary, um, but the evidence is kind of mixed because if you look at the uh, where women do the best, it's usually in kind of the hybrid states where it's kind of a little bit of both. So it seems like the citizen legislatures are not, you know, it's not a linear relationship um, because because you could also say, well, there's more competition for professionalism for those seats. They're so desirable. Everybody wants those seats. Um, you have to be a self-starter to get into those and really build a career to get into those. So that's kind of a, the contrary story about professionalism. Well, I mean, isn't, isn't part of the other thing just part-time, right? I mean, you just have, like, if women are, if you assume a kind of male breadwinner model and greater pressure on women to be doing caregiving, then women are have less need to make money and more need for flexible time, and so that they have more, you know, a greater propensity to go into a part-time than a full-time legislature. I don't know. That's another yeah. argument. I don't know whether yeah. it bears out in your data. That's why I'm interested. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I would just say it's it's kind of um, when I've looked at state variation, it's yeah. it's kind of mixed what the okay. effects are because it's because it's, it's, it's cut one way or the other. yeah because you know um, the retirees or the homemakers can do you know a citizen model isn't necessarily disadvantageous to them. Right. Women because the argument is women uh, because women still earn less than men in the labor force. It's not they don't. They're not they don't have the same opportunity costs as men right. to serve. Yeah, so it's interesting. I don't think there's a clear, we've figured out what the exact relationship is yet. But it's it's interesting. Okay. Did you also add up to the observing the constitutional difference between the Republican and the Republican? <coughs> not, um, there weren't, I mean, there are some differences between the parties, so Teachers are more likely to be Democrats than Republicans, um, but the same, but a similar occupational story is going on in both among both groups of women.
Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I think what we really need to be able to answer that is data that we don't have here, which is the candidates and who is, you know, how does occupation affect vote getting and how does that, how is that, or is that tied up with political parties and gender? Because I think that the women in politics literature, I think Darcy Welch and Clark, who have kind of made the argument about the social eligibility pool and kind of the need for women to move into male-dominated occupations, observe that, you know, it's easier, that women can get there from female-dominated occupations, but it's easier from male-dominated occupations. And so they were really looking to that uh, stream. So I think there might be resource advantages that the male-dominated occupations have. Um, but so I think there might be a story there. But I think it also depends on who, you know, probably depends on the party and the district, you know, in terms of um, those occupational differences. But I guess, so what we're trying to argue is um, women can be successful from those female dominated occupations, and that that's how they've been more getting there. But it's not to say that women can't also get there from male dominated occupations. <laughs> Any other? Yeah, I mean, um, I think, I mean, there is some evidence that men have moved a little on this issue from 81 to 2008. So there has been some shifting among men in terms of that embeddedness. Um, I don't think we have particular advice about how individual woman, women can, um, you know, kind of positing it as kind of overcoming overcoming this. Um, but I think that women, I mean, women in our sample are, yeah, they're less likely to be married. They're less likely to have young children. Um, and that has been the case kind of over time for uh, office holder studies. And I don't know, I think what, we, what we're trying to argue is that people have to understand that this is where women are coming from and this is their decision-making process, that they need supports and encouragement because of these, this kind of differential decision-making. Um, but I think we would argue that there are enough women out there that we shouldn't just assume that there just aren't enough interested women um, that, that couldn't be getting there, but they have to have support because of the different kind of um, perspectives that they want to take into account in their decision. I mean, at, this, at the policy level, you know, there are things that we could be doing to make it easier for women in all, 
not just running for office, but pursuing all kinds of things um, in terms of family responsibility. So I think that there's a, you know, there's kind of an obvious public policy solution also. Yeah. Just to kind of follow up on that, and one thing about it, and I think there's an aspect of that, of the question that, that where it confounds some things, like when you say like women are more relational, I think some people think, oh, that's because women are hardwired to be more relational, but if, if you just divided into people, not men and women, and you had one set of people, or just divided men, men with greater, like men who have to care for their children. I mean, if, I think it's any, for, for men who have greater responsibility or need to care for, you know, a child who's ill or an aging parent or something, I mean, men with greater caregiving responsibilities would probably also report that they took that more into account. It's not necessarily our hardwiring, but it, there is this right. potential to confound that with the stereotype that women are more relationally embedded and therefore they can't act, whereas structurally they're probably more relationally embedded. And then even also with the party asking you, Madeline Albright's got this great line um, from a graduation speech. She said, you know, um, uh, when I was young, I never imagined I'd be Secretary of State. She said, because not because I was modest, because I'd never seen the Secretary of State in a skirt. You know, I mean, if, for in, if, if this is a, this is something where mostly men are doing this, it's not that surprising that it's kind of outside women's imagination set. You know, that you need, for any category of people, minority also, it'd be interesting to look at whether, and maybe you've got data on this, whether minority candidates are also, minority male candidates are also more likely than, you know, majority or like say white male candidates to say, to run for office because somebody encouraged them. Um, maybe it's, it's, it's got to do with there are fewer people like me who've played this role in the past that I've witnessed and therefore it was outside my imagination set. But anyways, I just, and one, if I could um, build on this also, in your mayor's study, you talked about active discouragement also mm -hmm. as part of this um, relational. And I was wondering if you have that data for the state legislators as well. Yeah, um, we find, so again, these are survivors. But we do ask about, did anyone discourage you? So we ask about encourage, who encouraged you, but we have a separate question about, did anyone discourage you from running? Um, and uh, Democratic, just think in the book, we present some evidence that women of color are more likely to say they were discouraged mm -hmm. from running than Anglo women. Um, and that for, I know, just, I don't remember what the Republican data looked like, but I remember for the Democrats in particular, uh, Democratic women and Democratic Anglo women and Democratic men look pretty much the same at level of discouragement, but women of color kind of stand out. And I think that Republican women compared to Democratic women, Republican women were more likely to have been discouraged. So that, um, and again, this is something that we haven't really um, focused on in our research because we tend to think of candidates self, as self-propelled. The story about women's underrepresentation is a dearth of women candidates. Why don't they just run? But then there's this other. These, there are these other aspects, which is discouragement. So these women got over that. They didn't matter that they were discouraged. They're sitting there in the legislature. They made it into our study. But I think that that's um, something that we don't really know, and that's really something that we need to kind of look at at the potential candidate or losing candidate level. Um, and you know, family, just go back to the question about relationally embedded, family can be a motivator. You know, you do find some evidence, you know, um, some women um, in our study got there because um, a family member suggested that they run for office. So it's not necessarily that it always has to be a constraint. You know, it could be, but um, I think that we're trying to argue it's a more complex situation women find themselves in. And, um, and it's not necessarily 
that men have to be the norm. You know, maybe men need to be more relationally embedded, you know, so maybe they ought to be thinking more about their families or something. And, and like I said, we did find some uptick in that. Thank you so much. It's really interesting. Thanks for coming. All right, wonderful. I hope you'll all join us next.